Psalm 109, verses 1 through 15. Uh, let us take heed how we hear and offer our hearing as worship, for these are the words of God. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before Yahweh, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before Yahweh, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. So far the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. We read in Psalm 2 that the nations rage and kings and peoples plot in vain to uh, throw off the rule of God and of his anointed. Uh, and his anointed, uh, at first, the first anoint, uh, great and good anointed king, I guess uh, Saul was the first anointed king, but until Christ, uh, the one who embodies the, uh, the messianic, the anointed kingship uh, over God's people and of God's kingship over his people and over all peoples, is David. And David is the one, of course, uh, who wrote this psalm, as we just read and heard in the superscript, which, of course, is Hebrew uh, scripture uh, and ought to be in our English Bibles, not distinguished uh, as it often is uh, in the printings. Uh, and so uh, David is aware whenever he is attacked, whenever his reign is resisted, whenever he is accused, uh, that what is happening is not just an attack upon him personally or even his throne politically, uh, but it is against his uh, his anointing uh, uh, covenantally uh, and mediatorily uh, and against God himself. Uh, now we see this not in terms of uh, uh, the anointed kingship of David, uh, but even uh, more fully in Revelation 12, uh, in that which is done against Christ, who is, of course, uh, the the child of the woman, who the ancient serpent, the devil, hates and wants to destroy and tries to destroy, but he's caught up into heaven. Uh, and yet the woman is left behind with her children uh, and the dragon, the ancient serpent, in his rage against Christ, attacks uh, Christ's church and the children of his church, the individual believers 
who remain upon the earth, uh, so that we can have that perspective which the Apostle Paul learned on the road to Damascus, knowing that uh, even if someone doesn't know that he is in uh, the the in bondage to the devil, that he is in service to the devil, anyone who attacks Christ, anyone who attacks uh, Christians, rather, is attacking Christ himself, which Paul learned from Jesus when he was uh, uh, had pretty much cleaned up the market for attacking Christians in Jerusalem uh, and was going to Damascus to attack Christians there, you remember. And the Lord Jesus appeared to him, literally knocked him down with his glory, uh, announced to him from heaven, addressed him from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Saul knew who it was that he was talking to, or at least um, the title uh, of who it was who he was talking to, but he didn't know how it could be that he had been attacking him. And he said, Lord, who are you? Uh, and he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, taking personally what is done, not only against his anointing and his throne, but even every one of those who are united to him by faith. Now that that knowledge of the attack that is made upon God's king, God's anointed, and uh, now as we understand uh, union with Christ and how we are saved, <coughs> how faith unites us to him uh, more fully from the whole of Scripture, especially the New Testament, we understand uh, how uh, a believer who is under attack might rightly sing and pray this psalm. Uh, now we'll, we'll uh, give some guardrails, some theological and, uh, and spiritual guardrails to that uh, in a moment, but just the, to the chief musician, right? Which means it's given to the Levitical choir, the priestly choir, uh, for the people of God as a whole to sing in their corporate union with the Lord God and in their corporate union and representation, even with King David, who is in his person a representative uh, of the nation, the kingdom uh, of God's people. Uh, and so, you know, they sang in corporate union with himself already. And in, uh, in corporate union, they prayed in corporate union uh, with, uh, with the king, this psalm, looking forward to the son of David. Uh, who, of whom all these things that were already true of David would be most completely and fully and finally everlastingly true, the forever king who had been promised uh, in Second Samuel 7. Uh, one of the differences for us, though, as we've already mentioned, is we don't just sing in corporate union with a king on earth who, upon whom physical oil has been poured. Uh, we do sing in behalf of the church. We do pray in behalf of the church. Uh, especially the persecuted churches, as we often pray, for instance, in, um, in the prayer meetings, because we try to pray in a way that's shaped uh, by the Bible. Uh, but we also now know that every believer individually has such a union with Christ uh, that, Jesus, uh, that Jesus would say in Matthew 25, verses 34 through 46, whatever has been done for one of the least of his brethren or against one of the least of his brethren. 
Uh, and so in that case, not just the church generally, not just the kingdom generally, not just Christ uh, specifically by name, uh, but even one of the least, the uh, the smallest one who is united to him, is united to him. Uh, and so that actually expands for us our understanding and application of Psalm 109. So don't listen to people who say, oh, well, Psalm 109 is one of those Old Testament prayers and one of those Old Testament songs. Actually, it belongs more to the New Testament believer by virtue of his conscious union with Christ through faith than it did even in the Old Testament. Psalms like this are more appropriate to be prayed and more appropriate to be sung through union with Christ but they must be sung only through union with Christ. We'll see that in a moment. The psalm introduces this battle of speech. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise. David is praying, he's teaching us to pray and to sing that God would enter the fray and open his mouth, as it were, that he would declare his judgment. Uh, we sing that, of course, with respect to the last day in which he will literally uh, declare uh, judgment as uh, as we uh, think about in verse 7. Uh, but there are also all of these providences in which the justice and the justness of God breaks into time, where those who have been lied about are vindicated, where those who have been oppressed are delivered, where those who have lifted themselves up are brought down, and God opposes and uh, destroys and humiliates the proud, uh, when that which was done wickedly in secret is exposed, uh, as sometimes we'll have to wait for the judgment, but often in the course of his providence he causes to happen. And we bless the justness and the justice of God at those times. Those are all openings of the mouth of the judge, um, the one whom, um, the one whom we praise. So why does he want God to open his mouth? Is because the mouth of the wicked, verse two, is already opened. The mouth of the wicked, the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. Uh, and so he's, he's praying for something to occur, not just in the last day, but in time that is as God opening his mouth to shut the mouth that has been opened against us. And we do this, of course, in submission to God, knowing that the vengeance of God is sure, knowing that the wrath of God is sure, knowing that the vindication of the name of Christ, who already sits exalted on the throne of glory in his uh, in His mediatorial, king, mediatorial kingship, uh, that uh, that his name and his honor are going to be vindicated repeatedly throughout history. You know, we already have him as our great and last prophet. We already have him as our our forever great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we already have him as our forever king, the fulfiller uh, of, the, uh, of the prophecy and the promise uh, in 2 Samuel 7. And so it is appropriate for us to sing and to pray, not only for the final opening of God's mouth, but these openings of God's mouth uh, throughout the course of history that correspond to various shuttings of the mouth of the wicked. He shuts them up 
by what he does in history. Uh, and this, uh, this has happened with regularity for the last 3,000 years in which this has been sung and prayed and every generation of believers uh, who are reviled and persecuted and slandered, which we are guaranteed to happen, as we've just heard recently in Matthew 5 and not that long ago uh, in Second Timothy. Uh, every generation of believers who are uh, reviled and persecuted and slandered have Psalm 109 to pray and to sing in union with Christ, because the mouths of the wicked are open, and we may pray and sing that in moments of history God would open his mouth. But we do so as those who are not opening our mouths for the first time. If we want to pray and sing this well, then we need to be those whose mouths are already being employed to serve the Lord, that we not offer our lips as instruments of unrighteousness. Uh, as the book of James uh, warns us in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, uh, that praise and cursing should not come from the same mouth. So even our memory verse this week, uh, and how the way we use our mouths with one another needs to obey the sixth commandment, because our mouths were created to obey the first four commandments. And David is praying and singing here and by the Spirit, um, and teaching us also by the Spirit to do the same. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise. So is is David silent until uh, the Psalm 109 situation comes around? No. He uses his mouth to praise God. And that's why even these who are his enemies against him, he has loved with his tongue. In return for my love, verse 4, they are my accusers. They have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love, verse 5. And so verse 4 is actually the, the middle line there that we just skipped, implies praying for his enemies, which we have seen him say before. You remember the psalm in which uh, this man who is hating him, who is turning on him, when when he was in trouble, God prayed, for, or, or when he was in trouble, uh, the psalmist prayed for him like it was his mom who was in trouble, his brother who was in trouble. And so he says, I give myself to prayer, verse 4. So the believer in the course of Psalm 109 is not someone who under the the accusation and the hatred and the opposition, the distress that he's in uh, at the time is opening his his mouth for the first time. Now, he's one whose mouth is already being employed in God's praise, already being employed in prayer. And that's one of the reasons why when his enemy curses him, he doesn't re respond with reviling for reviling, but he blesses. He prays for those who persecute him. Why? Because his mouth is trained already in its purpose by that life of praise unto God, by that life of prayer unto God. And so if we want to be prepared for when people attack us, we need to use our mouths well on an ongoing, <laughs> continuing basis in dependence upon God that the grace of Christ would control our lips so that when we are attacked, we would not, we would not sin back at the person who attacks us. But we would turn our lips to the God of our praise, to the one who we already pray to all the time, and say, okay, God, open your mouth in my behalf. 
because my mouth is occupied in praising you and in praying. So there's a battle of speech going on here. Now, it's important to remember when we, uh, when we pray and sing like this that there is that dynamic of here not going to war uh, with attack upon our enemy from our lips, but going to war by prayer unto God, that God would take his vengeance. There are many other sorts of psalms that we can only sing in union with Christ, uh, especially like psalms um, asking God to declare us righteous or to teach or, or to treat us in according with our righteousness. Or, <coughs> But this one, the, that God would destroy uh, uh, those who are our enemies uh, and curse them, this can only be sung in union with Christ, because it's not so much the fact that they are our enemies, but that by virtue of union with him, they are his enemies that make all of these things uh, appropriate to pray and appropriate to sing. And indeed, uh, remembering then that Jesus also loves his enemies and died for his enemies uh, and desiring uh, that enemies would be eliminated by becoming subjects and by becoming adopted children in Christ and praying for the conversion um, of uh, of wicked kings and those in high position and uh, of those who attack us, those who persecute us, uh, and so forth. Uh, so this psalm uh, should really wake us up to the great conflict uh, between Satan and Christ and how those who attack believers are actually entering or acting on the wrong side of that conflict. And sometimes that is us. We're on the right side of the conflict if we're in union with Christ. But don't we attack Jesus too? If we attack those who belong to him? Uh, and especially since he says the least of uh, of them in Matthew 25. And, uh, and so we should... Uh, we should talk and, uh, or we should sing and pray like this, but we should only sing and pray, uh, like this in the way of union with Christ. Uh, and if we're remembering that, then, uh, then we are going to be helped, um, to be very careful of our hearts and mouths with respect to people in the church, uh, with respect to those who profess Christ. Uh, lest, uh, lest we should attack those who are united to him. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, it's very important to leave vengeance to God, that we not be, that we be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to be, uh, become angry, because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That we not repay evil for evil but leave vengeance to the Lord because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so he gives us instruction to love and do good to our enemy. Well, why are we enabled to? Because we are so sure of the wrath of God, the vengeance of God. You know, we can pray and sing this with confidence because we know that God will do it, but his wrath and vengeance aren't just sure they are immense. They are immeasurable. We are unable. Even, even if we were not indulging the heat of our own wrath in revenge, we would be unable to give the right kind of vengeance. 
uh, it would not be as great as God's vengeance uh, and uh, as God's wrath. Uh, and so, yes, we may sing and pray in this manner, but it must only ever be in a union with Christ that is actually a union uh, a union with him that learns to leave vengeance entirely to him. And we don't indulge the the heat of the wrath of our flesh as we sing Psalm 109. But we sing Psalm 109 in awe at the certainty of God's wrath and vengeance and the intensity of God's wrath and vengeance. We ourselves not giving in to the intensity of our wrath and vengeance. And so as we do so, uh, we are prepared to, to see the rest of the passage that is before us really as opposite the blessing that is in Christ. For instance, set a wicked man over him. Why? Well, he's rejected Jesus. Their only other options are wicked men. If you will not be ruled by Christ, by whom will you be ruled? Horrors, you'll be ruled by yourself, who is a wicked man, or you'll be ruled by someone else who are all wicked men. We want to be ruled by Jesus. And so it is exactly appropriate to pray and to sing that the one who is against Christ and who is against his people and who is against his kingdom will be ruled by the wicked. That is God's just uh, wrath towards them. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Why? Because the only one who can advocate for a sinner is the Lord Jesus, the one who died for us the one who has risen again on account of our justification. He is our advocate. He is our champion. He is the only one who can defend you at the judgment, who can stand at your right hand at the judgment, and you will be vindicated. The other option would be the devil. And actually, the word accuser here is a word that is Satan. Let Satan stand. He doesn't want Christ uh, in uh, included in his judgment while well, he gets the devil. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become a sin. It's so sad that even believers will read something like verse 7 and say, oh, let his prayer become a sin. How horrible. We could never pray, pray like that. If you are not praying through the Lord Jesus and in union with him, your prayer is always a sin. The only way, the only reason God ever hears the prayer of a sinner is for the sake of his son who puts away our sin by his cross and who merits, who earns our hearing and our standing before God by his own righteousness. Every prayer that isn't prayed through Jesus is a sin. And so God will say in, in places like uh, Isaiah chapter 1 and elsewhere in the Proverbs and uh, in the prophets, that the prayers of his people were wicked to him because they were wicked. They were not submitting themselves to him and coming through faith in his promised Christ, coming through faith in the promised priest and sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. And so God hated their prayers and treated them as wickedness. And so verse 7 also is uh, righteous and judge and, uh, and just. Verse 8, again, the only forever king is Jesus. That's why the promise in Second Samuel 7 of a forever king who had come from the line of David could only be Jesus. It couldn't be Solomon. And then as you read First Kings and Second Kings, you find two big problems with each of these kings. One, they're sinners. 
So they can't be the the righteous king. And two, they keep on dying. But God says of his anointed in Psalm 16 that his flesh wouldn't see corruption. And so what Peter had preached from that psalm on the day of Pentecost, uh, here the, the Psalm 109 is teaching us to pray according to, and that all uh, all authority that refuses to submit to Christ would be destroyed, and that the administrations of these authorities would be short. Sometimes we do that, don't we, even with administrations that are set over us, that are wicked. Lord, shorten it. And maybe shorten it by converting him and change it in a moment or shorten it in some other way. Deliver us from this tyranny that has been set over us. Let their days be few. Let another take their office. And then especially verses 9 through 15, uh, you could almost go to Psalm 128. We usually uh, sing it um, now. Uh, Bless the man that fears Jehovah and that walketh in his ways. I like the old red version better. Uh, That's neither here nor there, but it's the man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. And uh, what sorts of blessings then uh, does this man get? Well, he eats the labors of his hand. He is happy and it is well with him. Psalm 128 verse 2, what is the curse here that is is prayed and sung? Uh, In part, let the creditor seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder his labor. Don't let him eat the work of his hands. That's a blessing that comes in Christ, in the fear of the Lord. Or the, the next part in, uh, in Psalm 128, your wife shall be a, like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. But where is the wife of the cursed one who has opposed Christ in Psalm 109? Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let those children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. So they no longer have this godly husband and godly father. And they are not provided for in the home. They're not around the table at home. Why? Because they're out of the home begging somewhere. Uh, Psalm 128, the rest of verse 3. Your children, like olive plants all around your table. And we just uh, just read verse 9. His children become a widow. His children continually be vagabonds. Uh, and beg, let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any favor to his fatherless children. Continuing in Psalm 128, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. Yahweh bless you out of Zion, that you may see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Consider the rest of our passage. Let his posterity be cut off. And the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Exactly the opposite of, may you see your children's children. Verse 14, let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before Yahweh. Let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Exactly the opposite of the blessing upon Zion and Jerusalem and Israel. That that not only will your descendants be blessed, but the nation from which you are descended, the father from whom you are descended that they would be blessed. But let their, here rather than let them be blessed and God's peace be on Israel, let the sins of those from whom you are descended, verse, or from whom he, the wicked, is descended, verse 15, be continually before Yahweh, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. 
And so all blessing is in God and in his Christ. And when someone sets himself against the Lord Jesus, when someone sets himself against a believer, what he is signing up for is the opposite of all blessedness. And we sing with dreadful solemnity and seriousness the curse that God rightly ought to bring upon the one who has set himself against God, set himself against Christ, set himself against Christians, realizing that he is bringing the fullness of curse upon his head. And so rather than having the heat of our fleshly vengeance rise up against him, we sing in praise of God and in prayer to God that he would act according to his own character and his own covenant, asking both that those who are his enemies would be made subjects by redemption and that those who remain enemies would be accursed with God's curse, realizing that we were those enemies. That 109, Psalm 109, could rightly have been sung about us by Jesus. But Jesus gave himself for us so that the very blessings that are renounced against the wicked have become ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by who he is and what he has done and that in his personal love to us, he's done it for us and given us such a union with him that not only are all of these blessings ours that are listed in this psalm, but we are able to sing and pray the psalm itself in union with him. It's just wonderful and amazing. Praise God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us, that your spirit would restrain the heat of our fleshly vengeance, and that he would make us to realize freshly how the one who rightly would have said and done all of these things about us and to us has given himself for us and united us to himself. Help us to love the name of the Lord Jesus. Help us to love the authority of the Lord Jesus. Help us to love the blessedness of belonging to the Lord Jesus. So that when he is opposed or we are opposed and we know that he receives it personally or whenever we are in danger of attacking others, that we would be able to pray and to sing this psalm with right hearts given by your Spirit from your Son, our Lord Jesus himself, and give us to live in this awareness of all things being divided into the two categories, either with him and for him, under him, or opposed to him and accursed by him. Help us, we pray, by your Spirit in the Lord Jesus' own name. Amen.